0: Part 3, Chapter 11, of Madame Bovary, by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 3, Chapter 11. The next day Charles had the child brought back. She asked for her mamma. They told her she was away, that she would bring her back some playthings. Berta spoke of her again several times, then at last thought no more of her. The child's gaiety broke Bovary's heart, and he had to bear besides the intolerable consolations of the chemist. Money troubles soon began again, Monsieur Leroux urging on anew his friend Vankar, and Charles pledged himself for exorbitant sums, for he would never consent to let the smallest of the things that had belonged to her be sold. His mother was exasperated with him, He grew even more angry than she did. He had altogether changed. She left the house. Then everyone began taking advantage of him. Mademoiselle L'Empereur presented a bill for six months' teaching, although Emma had never taken a lesson, despite the receipted bill she had shown Bovary. It was an arrangement between the two women. The man at the circulating library demanded three years' subscriptions. Mayor Rollet claimed the postage due for some twenty letters, and when Charles asked for an explanation, she had the delicacy to reply, Oh, I don't know, it was for her business affairs. With every debt he paid, Charles thought he had come to the end of them, but others followed ceaselessly. He sent in accounts for professional attendance. He was shown the letters his wife had written, Then he had to apologise. Felicite now wore Madame Bovary's gowns, not all, for he had kept some of them, and he went to look at them in her dressing-room, locking himself up there. She was about her height, and often Charles, seeing her from behind, was seized with an illusion and cried out, Oh, stay, stay! But at Whitsuntide she ran away from Yonville, carried off by Theodore, stealing all that was left of the wardrobe. It was about this time that the widow Dupuy had the honour to inform him of the marriage of Monsieur Leon Dupuy, her son, notary at Evato to Mademoiselle Leosardi Le Beuf of Montville. Charles, among the other congratulations he sent him, wrote this sentence How glad my poor wife would have been. One day, when wandering aimlessly about the house he had gone up to the attic, he felt a pellet of fine paper under his slippers. He opened it and read, Courage, Emma, courage, I would not bring misery into your life. It was Rodolphe's letter, fallen to the ground between the boxes where it had remained, and that the wind from the dormer window had just blown towards the door. And Charles stood, motionless and staring, in the very same place where, long ago, Emma, in despair and paler even than he, had thought of dying. At last he discovered a small R at the bottom of the second page. What did this mean? He remembered Rodolphe's attentions, his sudden disappearance, his constrained air when they had met two or three times since, but the respectful tone of the letter deceived him. Perhaps they loved one another platonically, he said to himself. Besides, Charles was not of those who go to the bottom of things, He shrank from the proofs, and his vague jealousy was lost in the immensity of his woe. Everyone, he thought, must have adored her. All men, assuredly, must have coveted her. She seemed but the more beautiful to him for this. He was seized with a lasting, furious desire for her that inflamed his despair and that was boundless, because it was now unrealizable. To please her as if she was still living, he adopted her predilections, her ideas. He bought patent leather boots and took to wearing white cravats. He put cosmetics on his moustache and, like her, signed notes of hand. She corrupted him from beyond the grave. He was obliged to sell his silver piece by piece. Next he sold the drawing-room furniture. All the rooms were stripped but the bedroom, her own room, remained as before. After his dinner, Charles went up there. He pushed the round table in front of the fire and drew up her armchair. He sat down opposite it. A candle burnt in one of the gilt candlesticks. Berta, by his side, was painting prints. "'He suffered, poor man, at seeing her so badly dressed "'with laceless boots and the armholes of her pinafore "'torn down to the hips, for the charwoman took no care of her. "'But she was so sweet, so pretty, "'and her little head bent forward so gracefully, "'letting the dear fair hair fall over her rosy cheeks, "'that an infinite joy came upon him, a happiness mingled with bitterness, "'like those ill-made wines that taste of resin. "'He mended her toys,' made her puppets from cardboard, or sewed up half-torn dolls. Then, if his eyes fell upon the workbox, a ribbon lying about, or even a pin left in a crack of the table, he began to dream and looked so sad that she became as sad as he. No one now came to see them, for Justin had run away to Rouen, where he was a grocer's assistant, and the druggist's children saw less and less of the child, Monsieur Hommet not caring seeing the difference of their social position, to continue the intimacy. The blind man, whom he had not been able to cure with the pomade, had gone back to the hill of Bois-Guillaume, where he told the travellers of the vain attempt of the druggist to such an extent that Homais, when he went to town, hid himself behind the curtains of the Urandelle to avoid meeting him. He detested him and wishing in the interest of his own reputation to get rid of him at all costs, he directed against him a secret battery that betrayed the depth of his intellect and the baseness of his vanity. Thus, for six consecutive months, one could read in the Fanal de Rouen editorials such as these, All who bend their steps towards the fertile plains of Picardy have no doubt remarked by the Bois-Guillaume Hill a wretch suffering from a horrible facial wound. He importunes, persecutes one and levies a regular tax on all travellers. Are we still living in the monstrous times of the Middle Ages when vagabonds were permitted to display in our public places leprosy and scrofulas they had brought back from the Crusades? Or, in spite of the laws against vagabondage, the approaches to our great town continue to be infected by bands of beggars, Some are seen going about alone, and these are not perhaps the least dangerous. What are our ediles about? Then Homais invented anecdotes. Yesterday by the Bois Guillaume Hill, a skittish horse. And then followed the story of an accident caused by the presence of the blind man. He managed so well that the fellow was locked up. But he was released. He began again, and Homais began again. It was a struggle, I may want it, for his foe was condemned to lifelong confinement in an asylum. This success emboldened him, and henceforth there was no longer a dog run over, a barn burnt down, a woman beaten in the parish, of which he did not immediately inform the public, guided always by the love of progress and the hate of priests. He instituted comparisons between the elementary and clerical schools to the detriment of the latter called to mind the massacre of St. Bartholomew, apropos of a grant of one hundred francs to the church, and denounced abuses, aired new views. That was his phrase. Hommé was digging and delving. He was becoming dangerous. However, he was stifling in the narrow limits of journalism, and soon a book, a work, was necessary to him. Then he composed general statistics of the canon of Yonville, followed by climatological remarks. The statistics drove him to philosophy. He busied himself with great questions, the social problem, moralization of the poorer classes, pisciculture, kachouk, railways, etc. He even began to blush at being a bourgeois. He affected the artistic style. He smoked. He bought two chic Pompadour statuettes to adorn his drawing room. He by no means gave up his shop. On the contrary, he kept well abreast of new discoveries. He followed the great movement of chocolates. He was the first to introduce cocoa and Revelenta into the Seine inférieure. He was enthusiastic about the hydroelectric Pulvermacher chains. He wore one himself. And when at night he took off his flannel vest, Madame Homais stood quite dazzled before the golden spirals beneath which he was hidden, and felt her ardour redouble for this man more bandaged than a Scythian and splendid as one of the Magi. He had fine ideas about Emma's tomb. First he proposed a broken column with some drapery, next a pyramid, then a temple of Vesta, a sort of rotunda, or else a mass of ruins. And in all his plans, Homais always stuck to the weeping willow, which he looked upon as the indispensable symbol of sorrow. Charles and he made a journey to Rouen together to look at some tombs at a funeral furnishers, accompanied by an artist, one Vaufrilade, a friend of Brido's, who made puns all the time. At last, after having examined some hundred designs, having ordered an estimate and made another journey to Rouen, Charles decided in favour of a mausoleum, which on the two principal sides was to have a spirit bearing an extinguished torch. As to the inscription, Hommé could think of nothing so fine as Star Viator, and he got no further. He racked his brain, he constantly repeated Star viato. At last he hit upon Amabilen Conjugem Calcus, which was adopted. A strange thing was that Bovary, while continually thinking of Emma, was forgetting her. He grew desperate as he felt this image fading from his memory, in spite of all efforts to retain it. Yet every night he dreamt of her. It was always the same dream. He drew near her, and when he was about to clasp her, she fell into decay in his wrists. For a week he was seen going to church in the evening. Monsieur Bourissien even paid him two or three visits, then gave him up. Moreover, the old fellow was growing intolerant, fanatic, said Hamé. He thundered against the spirit of the age and never failed every other week in his sermon to recount the death agony of Voltaire, who died devouring his excrements, as everyone knows. In spite of the economy with which Bovary lived, he was far from being able to pay off his old debts. Leroux refused to renew any more bills. A distraint became imminent. Then he appealed to his mother, who consented to let him take a mortgage on her property, but with a great many recriminations against Emma. And in return for her sacrifice, she asked for a shawl that had escaped the depredations of Felicite. Charles refused to give it her. They quarrelled. She made the first overtures of reconciliation by offering to have the little girl who could help her in the house to live with her. Charles consented to this, but when the time for parting came, all his courage failed him. Then there was a final, complete rupture. As his affections vanished, he clung more closely to the love of his child. She made him anxious, however, for she coughed sometimes and had red spots on her cheeks. Opposite his house, flourishing and merry, was the family of the chemist, with whom everything was prospering. Napoleon helped him in the laboratory, utterly embroidered him a skullcap, Irma cut out rounds of paper to cover the preserves, and Franklin recited Pythagoras's table in a breath. He was the happiest of fathers, the most fortunate of men. Not so. A secret ambition devoured him. may hankered after the cross of the Legion of Honour. He had plenty of claims to it. First, having at the time of the cholera distinguished myself by a boundless devotion. Second, by having published at my expense various works of public utility, such as, and he recalled his pamphlet entitled Cider, Its Manufacture and Effects, besides observation of the lanigerous plant louse sent to the academy, his volume of statistics, and down to his pharmaceutical thesis, without counting that I am a member of several learned societies, He was a member of a single one. In short, he cried, making a pirouette, if it were only for distinguishing myself at fires. Then Hormé inclined towards the government. He secretly did the prefect great service during the elections. He sold himself, in a word, prostituted himself. He even addressed a petition to the sovereign in which he implored him to do him justice. He called him our good king and compared him to Henry IV and every morning the druggist rushed for the paper to see if his nomination were in it. It was never there. At last, unable to bear it any longer, he had a grass plot in his garden designed to represent the Star of the Cross of Honour, with two little strips of grass running from the top to imitate the ribbon. He walked round it with folded arms, meditating on the folly of the government and the ingratitude of men. From respect or from a sort of sensuality that made him carry on his investigation slowly, Charles had not yet opened the secret drawer of a rosewood desk which Emma had generally used. One day, however, he sat down before it, turned the key and pressed the spring. All Léon's letters were there. There could be no doubt this time. He devoured them to the very last ransacked every corner, all the furniture, all the drawers, behind the wall, sobbing, crying aloud, distraught, mad. He found a box and broke it open with a kick. Rodolphe's portrait flew full in his face in the midst of the overturned love letters. People wondered at his despondency. He never went out, saw no one, refused even to visit his patients. Then they said he shut himself up to drink. Sometimes, however, some curious person climbed onto the garden hedge and saw with amazement this long-bearded, shabbily-clothed, wild man who wept aloud as he walked up and down. In the evening in summer he took his little girl with him and led her to the cemetery. They came back at nightfall when the only light left in the place was that in Binet's window. The voluptuousness of his grief was, however, incomplete, for he had no one near him to share it and he paid visits to Madame Francois to be able to speak of her. But the landlady only listened with half an ear, having troubles like himself. For Leroux had at last established the Favorites du Commerce, and Hiver, who enjoyed a great reputation for doing errands, insisted on a rise of wages, and was threatening to go over to the opposition shop. One day, when he had gone to the market at Aigoy to sell his horse, his last resource, he met Rodolphe. They both turned pale when they caught sight of one another. Rodolphe, who had only sent his card, first stammered some apologies, then grew bolder, and even pushed his assurance, it was in the month of August and very hot, to the length of inviting him to have a bottle of beer at the public house. Leaning on the table opposite him, he chewed his cigar as he talked, and Charles was lost in reverie at this face that she had loved. He seemed to see again something of her in it, it was a marvel to him. He would have liked to have been this man. The other went on talking agriculture, cattle, pasturage, filling out with banal phrases all the gaps where an illusion might slip in. Charles was not listening to him. Rodolphe noticed it, and he followed the succession of memories that crossed his face. This gradually grew redder. The nostrils throbbed fast, the lips quivered. There was at last a moment when Charles, full of a sombre fury, fixed his eyes on Rodolphe, who, in something of fear, stopped talking. But soon the same look of weary lassitude came back to his face. "'I don't blame you,' he said. Rodolphe was dumb, and Charles, his head in his hands, went on in a broken voice and with a resigned accent of infinite sorrow. "'No, I don't blame you now.' He even made a fine phrase, the only one he ever made. It is the fault of fatality. Rodolphe, who had managed the fatality, thought the remark very offhand from a man in his position, comic even, and a little mean. The next day, Charles went to sit down on the seat in the arbour. Rays of light were straying through the trellis, the vine leaves threw their shadows on the sand, the jasmines perfumed the air. The heavens were blue, Spanish flies buzzed round the lilies in bloom, and Charles was suffocating like a youth beneath the vague love influences that filled his aching heart. At seven o'clock, little Berta, who had not seen him all the afternoon, went to fetch him to dinner. His head was thrown back against the wall, his eyes closed, his mouth open, and in his hand was a long tress of black hair. "'Come along, Papa,' she said and thinking he wanted to play, she pushed him gently. He fell to the ground. He was dead. Thirty-six hours after, at the druggist's request, Monsieur Canervé came thither. He made a post-mortem, and found nothing. When everything had been sold, twelve francs, seventy-five centimes remained that served to pay for Mademoiselle Bovary's going to her grandmother. The good woman died the same year, Old Rouault was paralysed, and it was an aunt who took charge of her. She is poor and sends her to a cotton factory to earn a living. Since Bovary's death, three doctors have followed one another at Yonville without any success, so severely did Homais attack them. He has an enormous practice. The authorities treat him with consideration, and public opinion protects him. He has just received the cross of the Legion of Honour. End of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling.